The sermon, the sermon text for this morning is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Um, it's on page 837 in the Bible under the chair in front of you. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What do you think is the biggest problem in the world? Some would argue poverty and inequality. Others would say climate change or environmental degradation. For some, it's political strife and social injustice. Yet for others, they don't know where to start. The list of problems seem endless. But let's bring it close to home. What would you say is the biggest problem in your life? Perhaps it's the relentless struggle to make ends meet. Insurmountable financial burdens that just loom over every decision. Maybe it's the silent battles with mental or physical health afflictions, the weight of which just seem too heavy to bear. Broken relationships, overwhelming workloads, feelings of loneliness, low self-esteem, the, the haunting specter of past trauma, 
Each person carries their own burdens. But if God were to fix one thing, either in the world or in your life, what would you long for him to address? Well, in our passage today, we encounter a man with a seemingly insurmountable problem. Yet, as we'll soon discover, Jesus reveals that the man's true affliction runs far deeper. If you're just joining us, we've been journeying through the gospel according to Mark, the earliest written account of Jesus' life. And we've seen that Mark's primary aim is to unveil Jesus as the embodiment of good news. And Mark has meticulously crafted his narrative to show us this. In the first half of the book, Mark is building a case for Jesus' identity. Who is he? Who is Jesus? In the second half of the book, Mark reveals Jesus' mission. Why did he come? And Mark's conviction is unwavering. Jesus is the epitome of good news. And today's passage is no exception. Mark unveils Jesus as good news through a series of remarkable events. And so to help us grasp the depth of this message, of his message rather, I've structured today's sermon under two points. First, we're going to see a shocking statement in verses 1 to 12, and then we're going to see a scandalous invitation in verses 13 to 17. So let's begin with a shocking statement in verses 1 to 12. Uh, When we left off last week, we saw that Jesus was growing in popularity. So at the end of chapter 1, we read that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And this sets us up for today's passage because a few days pass, and Jesus decides to return to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum acted as a kind of a a home base during Jesus' ministry. But news spreads quickly that he's in town. We're told that he was at home. We don't know whose home it is. Most scholars think it was probably Peter's or Andrew's house. And once word gets around, the crowd starts to descend on this house. Look at verse 2. We read that many were gathered together, so many that there was no more room But what about the door, you ask? Well, no, not even at the door. Mark is emphasizing that just just how packed this place is. This is a sold-out gig. You can imagine people just just crowding around the windows or or, or just climbing on top of each other's shoulders or, or with their ears just pressed against the wall, trying to listen. Because we're told there that Jesus is preaching the word. Now, last week... Jesus made it clear that preaching was at the heart of his ministry. His main goal was was not to heal people or cast out demons or or calm storms. He had a message to preach, the the gospel, the the euangelion, the, the good news that God's kingdom had arrived because God's king had arrived. And people could not get enough of that message because, well, they lived in the same world that we do a world of bad news. You know, there's just so much bad news out there, isn't there? Online, on TV, in the papers. It's just depressing. 
And so when someone has genuine good news for us, we're all ears. And Jesus has the best news you could ever hear. And he's preaching it wherever he goes with authority. And the people had never heard anything like it before. That's why they're coming in droves. In droves. All of a sudden, this Palestinian home is at the center of the universe. Now, houses in the first century typically had a flat roof. Uh, the roof was accessible via an outside staircase, and it functioned kind of like a deck. So it was a place to escape from the, the dank, crowded quarters below. And people would use it for a variety of reasons, so to get some fresh air, to, to dry clothes, to eat meals, to pray, and even to sleep on those warm summer nights. And the roof itself was made of, of wooden cross beams that were covered with thatch and a layer of compact dirt. And this all becomes relevant for what happens next because in verse three, we learn that a paralytic arrives being carried by four men. Life was extremely difficult for a paralytic in the first century. Uh, there was limited access to medical care or support services. There were few, if any, accommodations for those with disabilities. Oftentimes, a, a paralytic couldn't work, which meant they were often poor and had to resort to begging. And paralytics were heavily reliant on family members and friends, if they had any, for basic needs and mobility assistance. On top of all that, they endured social stigma. So it was common back then that suffering was a direct result, result of sin, either one's personal sin or the sin of one's parents. And this meant that paralytics faced added barriers to participating in society, so they were discriminated against, marginalized, viewed as inferior and cursed. If you'd have asked this paralytic what his biggest problem was, if you'd have asked him, if God were to fix one thing in your life, what would you long for him to address? There's no doubt what his answer would have been. Just imagine how different his whole life would be if he could walk. He'd feel like a new creation. It'd feel like being born again. To this paralytic, such a thought must have seemed like salvation. And so these four men carry the paralytic to Jesus. But such is life. By the time they arrive, it's too late. The venue is, has already reached its maximum occupancy. And they can't even get near Jesus. Now, they could have given up. They could have waited. They could have come back later or tried another day. But this man was desperate. And so we read in verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I mean, what a scene. And you just imagine being there. Jesus is preaching and next minute you just hear some weird noises and you look up and bits of dirt start falling on your face. Next minute a beam of, of sunlight shines through as the roof is ripped off. 
people gasp, the homeowner's jaw just hits the floor, and four men use all their might to lower their friend in front of Jesus. Amazing. Now, there must have been a variety of reactions. Surprise, contempt, confusion, anger even. But how does Jesus respond? How does he react? Well, he's impressed. Because, verse 5, he sees the faith of the paralytic and his friends. What we see here is a powerful picture of faith. The paralytic is utterly helpless. He can't fix his problem, but he knows someone who can. And so he overcomes every obstacle to get to Jesus. Nothing can stop him. Now, this is actually the first mention of faith in Mark's account. And notice that it's linked with action. In other words, faith isn't simply knowing facts about Jesus or even feeling a certain way about him. Faith is active trust that Jesus can meet our deepest needs. Faith overcomes every obstacle to get to Jesus. But what happens next is unexpected, to say the least. I told this story to my kids at the dinner table this week, and at at this point in the story, I said, what do you think Jesus did next? And my daughter said, make him walk. Because that's what what we expect him to do, isn't it? But instead, Jesus looks at the paralytic He sees his faith and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. It's a shocking statement. Now, there's no indication here that the man's paralysis was caused by his sin. So why does Jesus mention his sins? Why does he give him forgiveness instead of healing? I mean, at first, it seems like Jesus just can't read the room. But in reality, his words are profoundly insightful. Turns out, this man's greatest problem was not his paralysis, but his sin. His deepest need was not physical, but spiritual. Now, to understand exactly why, we need to understand what sin is. Sin is not just naughty behavior. Sin is the attempt to dethrone God. It's when we put ourselves in God's place, deciding for ourselves what is good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. Sin is when we ignore, neglect, and disobey our creator. It's a failure to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Sin is when we love other things more than God, thinking that they can give us what God can't or just won't. And sin is what separates us from God and from one another. It's, it's why the world is broken and cursed. It's why we are broken. And sin leads to death, both physical death and spiritual death. And the ultimate consequence of sin is eternal death, described in the Bible as hell. Sin is this man's biggest problem. Like if Jesus heals his body, but doesn't heal his soul, he's ultimately doomed. It'd be like putting a band-aid on a malignant tumor. Do you see how this applies to us? 
the biggest problem in the world is not terrorism or poverty. It's not lack of education or ecological disasters. It's not global warming or deadly disease. It's sin. The biggest problem in your life is, is not your boss or your bad grades or your overdue bills, your health issues, your low self-esteem, your relationship status. It's sin. The biggest, deepest problem is not outside of us, but inside of us. We need forgiveness. We need to be reconciled to God. The question is, can Jesus help us? Does he have the authority to forgive sins? In verse six, we learn that some scribes are sitting there. A scribe was an expert in what we now call the Old Testament. And they cannot believe what Jesus just said. They begin questioning in their hearts, verse seven, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, these folks knew the scriptures and they knew that God alone has the authority to forgive sins. And that's because sin is always first and foremost against God. Think about it this way. Imagine that Seth gets a bit bored during this sermon. And so he gets up and he leaves through the back doors and he walks up to my minivan parked on the street and he just proceeds to destroy it with his bare hands. And after a while, once he's smashed all the windows, he starts to feel bad, starts to feel guilty, ashamed, as he should. And uh, he comes back inside and he sits down in his seat. He puts his head in his hands and he just starts crying. Just imagine that a bit longer. (laughs) But then, then Caleb Vuljanic gets up and he makes his way to the front and he sits next to Seth and he puts his arm around him and he says, Seth, I forgive you. I mean, that would be extremely inappropriate, wrong, outrageous, because Caleb cannot forgive Seth. He doesn't have the right, the authority, because Seth's sin was not against Caleb. Who can forgive Seth but me alone? Now, more profoundly and seriously, only God can forgive sins because all sin is first and foremost against him. And that's why the scribes accuse Jesus of blasphemy. By bestowing forgiveness on this paralytic, Jesus is making an astonishing claim. He is claiming to be God. And the scribes think he's just a man. Do you see that? Why does this man speak like this? Amazingly, Jesus knows what they're thinking. Look at verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? There's great irony here. As they're scoffing at Jesus' claim to possess divine authority, Jesus demonstrates a divine ability to read their minds. He then says to them, 
in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins, are for, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. The answer, of course, is the first statement. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven than rise, take up your bed, and walk, since the latter requires external proof. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. That statement can't be falsified. However, if Jesus says to this man, get up and walk, well, the proof is in the pudding. His authority or lack thereof will be visible for all to see. Jesus continues in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, he turns to the paralytic and he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus is making a greater to lesser argument here. If he can heal this man's paralysis in front of them all, well, he can, he can, heal, the, he can heal his sins. He can forgive his sins. If he can do the harder thing, at least from a human perspective, he can do the easier thing. Because the authority to heal and the authority to forgive are actually come from the same authority. Look at verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. I mean, the paralytic gets up I mean, imagine the joy he must have felt. I can just imagine him leaping around and kicking his legs, maybe even doing a moonwalk. I don't know. What a scene this must have been. He picks up his bed and he walks out before them all. Jesus did the miracle they could see. Now they know he can do the miracle that they can't see. He has the authority to forgive sins. Through Jesus, this is what Mark's trying to tell us. Through Jesus, God's heavenly forgiveness has come to earth. Remember that Mark, he's trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? And this is a key piece of evidence because who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, Jesus has just proven that he has the authority to forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. And notice the people's response the people, they're all amazed. They know something special has happened. They, they know that this is a work of God. Now look, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're a little bit skeptical. After all, you've never seen a miracle like this. Your, your life's pretty normal. Ordinary things tend to happen. You've never witnessed any supernatural events. And so... A story like this can seem a bit far-fetched. Well, there are a couple of details in this passage that I think give us confidence that Mark is telling the truth. First, this is a public event. There's a crowd of people present, some of them very skeptical of Jesus. Multiple people witnessed this miracle. If Mark is making this up, plenty of people from Capernaum could have offered a different narrative. In a court of law, we know that eyewitness testimony is an important piece of evidence. 
and there are loads of eyewitnesses to this event. And the skeptics present, they held the social power in that day. Yet they never once argued that Jesus didn't perform this miracle. Secondly, these people, they they were not gullible. They lived ordinary lives like you and me. Supernatural happenings were not a part of their day-to-day. You know, we sometimes have this arrogant idea that people back then were a little bit stupid and naive and just believed anything. But we we must be careful of chronological snobbery, to use C.S. Lewis's term. The crowd had never seen anything like this before. They were as flabbergasted as we would have been if we were there. I mean, they, they couldn't deny what was plain to see. So if we find ourselves skeptical, maybe, maybe our skepticism has less to do with the evidence before us. Maybe we just don't want Jesus to have this kind of authority. Because if he does, then this passage becomes really personal, doesn't it? Because if this really happened, we actually have to face the fact that our biggest problem in life is our own sin. And some of us don't want to admit that because we don't want to give up our sin. We want to remain in control of our lives. We want to keep setting the agenda and calling the shots. We don't want Jesus to have any kind of authority over us. Now, look, if that's you, look, I get it. I understand why this can sound like bad news. Because from the moment we're born, we want to be our own authority. Any parent knows that. But what if Mark is right? What if Jesus is good news? What if he's the kind of authority that we would long to live under if we only understood who he is? You see, the reason Jesus can bestow forgiveness is not just because he's God. Eventually, Jesus will give his life as a sacrifice. He'll die on the cross, suffering both physical and spiritual death. He'll take the judgment that our sins deserve. He will pay the cost of our rebellion. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. He's a king who dies for his enemy, and then he makes them his friends and family. I mean, don't you want to follow someone like that? Don't you want to live under that kind of good authority? You know, if you're here this morning and you know that your greatest problem is your sin, let me just urge you to come to Jesus. You know, we're all spiritual paralytics. We're utterly helpless. We're unable to save ourselves. But there's good news for people like us. Friends, have faith that Jesus alone has authority to forgive our sins. He loves nothing more than than showering undeserving sinners with grace and mercy. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, what an encouragement this is. Brothers and sisters, our sins are forgiven. As we read earlier in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far Jesus has removed our transgressions from us. He's cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You know, the problems of life can seem overwhelming, can't they? There are so many things that weigh us down and threaten to crush us pressures at school and work and conflict with friends and family, 
physical and mental health issues, loneliness, meeting people's expectations, financial struggles, worries about our kids, exhaustion, the list goes on and on. And so often these things can seem like our biggest problem. And we can think if that was fixed, that would feel like salvation. Now look, I'm not trying to downplay any of those hardships. Our lives are filled with terrible afflictions, some of us more than others. But amidst these hardships, we must never forget that our greatest problem has been solved. Our deepest need has been met. Our sins have been forgiven. If Jesus has dealt with our biggest problem, we can trust him to deal with every other problem too, either in this life or the life to come. And actually, Jesus cares about these other hardships too. Remember, he healed the paralytic. Much of his ministry was meeting people's physical needs, even though he came to deal with their deeper need. He wants to bring complete healing, soul and body, and one day all creation will be renewed. But until then, let these words be the refrain of our lives. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So that's the first point. Second point, in verses 13 to 17, we're gonna see a scandalous invitation. A scandalous invitation. If you look in verse 13, Jesus goes to a quieter part of town. Yet even there, the crowds gather. But notice that Jesus never gets frustrated, nor does he turn people away. Instead, he begins teaching them the good news. In verse 14, he passes by a man named Levi sitting at the tax booth. This is probably the man we know better as Matthew. People often had two names back then. And Levi is a tax collector Now look, if you're here today and you're not familiar with the Bible, it's helpful to know that tax collectors were extremely hated and despised. They worked for the oppressive Romans and they made their living by charging above and beyond the taxes people owed. And they had a reputation for dishonesty and extortion, ripping off their fellow countrymen to get rich. They were often lumped together with with thieves and murderers. Culturally, it just became acceptable to even lie to a tax collector. They couldn't be a witness in court. They were expelled from the synagogue. They were a disgrace to their families. Like if you even happened to accidentally touch a tax collector, you were rendered unclean. Most people named Levi in the first century were Levites. A Levite was someone who was a member of the tribe of Levi. Uh, Descendants of Levi had a special calling to vocational ministry. Even in Jesus' day, they usually usually worked as as priests and scribes and, and teachers. It was both an expectation and a privilege. And this adds an extra layer of disgrace because if Levi is a Levite, which is probable, he would have been especially hated by his own countrymen. Because instead of pursuing a religious vocation, he chose to betray his own people for greed. Just think of the most despised person in our culture. 
the type of person that when you, when you see them on the news or you just hear someone mention them, your blood starts to boil. In your eyes, I mean, they're, they're just the scum of the earth, the worst of the worst. That was the tax collector in Jesus' day. And so just feel the shock of verse 14 because as Jesus passes by, he, he like looks through the crowd of people and he sees Levi sitting at his tax booth doing his greedy work. And he says to him, follow me. Wait, Jesus wants that guy? The greedy traitor? The sinner par excellence? That's who Jesus wants to befriend? And amazingly, Levi gets up and he follows Jesus. The word follow is used by Mark for those who respond to Jesus in faith, usually at great cost. Levi repents, he turns from his sin, which a sin which was probably quite lucrative, and he follows Jesus. In verse 15, the shock factor goes up a notch because Levi throws Jesus a banquet and he invites all of his friends. We're told there that many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. For the second time in our passage, we have a packed out house, but this time it's full of the most unlikely people. Now, biblically speaking, everyone's a sinner. However, in Jesus' day, sinners became a technical term. It referred to people who exhibited zero intention to follow religious laws. They were the scoundrels and and the riffraff of society, the outcasts. Alongside tax collectors, they were the furthest from the kingdom of God. And here's Jesus eating with them. To share a meal with someone in that culture was a sign of friendship, of acceptance. Now, thankfully, nobody knows Jesus is doing this. Oh, wait, verse 16. Because the scribes of the Pharisees see that Jesus is fellowshipping with the dregs of society and they are disgusted. They ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's the second time in our passage, the scribes are just like, why is Jesus doing that? Now the scribes of the Pharisees, they were experts of God's, God's law, so the scribes, but they also belonged to the sect of the Pharisees. Not all scribes were Pharisees, but these ones were. And actually, this is the first time Mark has mentioned the Pharisees. So again, if you're new to the Bible, the Pharisees were a religious sect that placed a high value on holiness. They were known for their strict adherence to God's law. They were, they were so passionate about rule following that they added their own man-made laws and traditions. Uh, They separated themselves from anything and anyone who would defile them. It seems like the word Pharisee comes from this, this Hebrew word meaning like separate. And so they would separate themselves from anything that was like unclean, anything that was, that was, that was, uh, 
any person that, that didn't live according to God's standards. They just didn't want anything to do with them. And, and they were actually the most morally respected and admired people in their day. They were the anti-tax collector. However, we're going to see this as, as we go through Mark. Their good and sincere desire to keep God's law meant that more often than not, they ended up taking on this self-righteous attitude that looked down on others. They came to see their own traditions as equal to or even more important than God's laws. And they put such a focus on external religious behavior that they often neglected what was going on inside their own hearts. And so many of them became self-righteous hypocrites. And so you can see why these people would take particular issue with Jesus. In, in their eyes, a godly person would never step foot inside a tax collector's house, never mind sharing a meal with such company. Jesus overhears their criticism, verse 17. And when, he, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' words would have seemed ludicrous to the Pharisees. Clear evidence that it, he's not actually the Christ. Because why would God's king call sinners to himself? Surely it's the righteous he wants, people like us. That's because the Pharisees thought that their biggest problem, the biggest problem in the world, was outside of them. If you'd have asked them, what's the biggest problem in the world? They'd have said the Romans or the tax collectors or the sinners. After all, they were the good guys, the righteous remnants. It was, it was everything and everyone else that needed to be fixed. But once again, Jesus challenges their assumptions. He didn't come for good people, but bad people. This is a world full of sinfully sick people. And Jesus is the doctor who has come with the cure. He came to save people from their sins. However, if you think you're healthy, who needs a doctor? Righteous people don't need a savior. They can save themselves, or at least they think they can. That's why the religious PhDs of the day were insulted by Jesus. If you think you're a good person, Jesus is very offensive. Because self-righteous people think all the, the biggest problems in the world are outside themselves. And then Jesus comes along and says, actually, no, you're the problem. In fact, your sin is so bad that you need a savior. You need me to come and die on the cross, taking the punishment that your sins deserve. And that's incredibly humbling. Like to someone who thinks they're inherently good, that message is hard to stomach. Look, there are two ways we can miss out on the good news of Jesus. The first way is to think you're too good for him. Many of us think that we are, think of ourselves as inherently good. Sure, we're not perfect, but compared to the tax collectors and sinners of the day, we're doing okay. And so we imagine that if, Jesus, if, if, if God did come to earth, and if he wanted to hang out with anyone, he'd probably want to hang out with somebody like us. And we'd be outraged if God befriended certain people, wouldn't we? 
the dregs of society, the, the people that we think of as the worst of the worst. The idea that we need forgiveness for our sins, that we can't save ourselves, that our sin is, is just so bad that God needed to come in the flesh and die for us, well, that's offensive. And so we're happy for Jesus to be a teacher or a moral example, maybe even a savior for other people, but not our savior. The second way to miss out on this good news is to think you're just too bad for Jesus, too sinful, too unclean, too messed up. Some of us know what it's like to be an outcast, to be marginalized. We're all too acquainted with our failures. And so we, we can't imagine someone like Jesus hanging out with someone like us. We think, oh, surely I have to get my act together first, which I probably never will. Surely I have to bring something to the table. Maybe that describes you this morning. The idea that Jesus offers you forgiveness, that he can save you, that he came and died for you personally, well, that sounds too good to be true. You know that both types of people are actually quite similar. The person who thinks they're too good for Jesus and the person that thinks they're too bad for Jesus are both trusting in their own righteousness. But here's the good news. Jesus didn't call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. No one's righteous. All have sinned and fall short of God's standards. Jesus came for sinners. Listen to the words of the apostle Paul. Once a self-righteous Pharisee, he came to see himself as a sinner in need of grace. Look what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You can't be too good for Jesus. Sorry, you can be too good for Jesus. You can be too self-righteous, too proud. But you actually can't be too bad for Jesus. You can't be too sinful, too unclean, too messed up because Jesus came for the, for the worst of the worst, the scum of the earth, the chief of sinners, Jesus came for the irreligious and the, and the religious. He came for the immoral and the moral. He came for the rule breakers and the rule keepers. He came for sinners. So if you know yourself to be a sinner this morning, Mark has really good news for you. You have a savior and he has the authority to forgive your sins. Isn't that great news? Like, isn't, it, this is news that is for everyone in this room. The only condition is that you come to Jesus in faith. Like the paralytic, recognizing that G Jesus can meet your deepest need. Do you ever feel like you can't come to Jesus because of your sin? Do you ever find yourself just keeping your distance? You know, of maybe avoiding prayer, skipping church, neglecting your Bible, just even distracting yourself from thinking about God because you just feel too guilty, too ashamed. Our default mode is to think that our sin disqualifies us. But look at verse 17 again. 
I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Your sin is actually what qualifies you to come to Jesus. Therefore, if you ever find yourself weighed down by your sin, crushed by your failures, Jesus is standing there with open arms. He has the authority to forgive sins, but he doesn't stop there. You see, here's a savior who doesn't merely tolerate you. Here's a savior who eats with tax collectors and sinners. He befriends the outcasts. He enjoys fellowship with those who follow him. And isn't that exactly what we see when we take the Lord's Supper together? Because at the table, Jesus invites sinners to dine with him. Once we were enemies, and now we are seated at his table. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is good news for sinners. That he has authority to forgive sins. Because he is God. And because he died on the cross, taking the punishments that we deserved. We confess, Lord, that we oftentimes think we're too good for Jesus. And we also oftentimes think we're too bad for him. But we thank you that your word corrects us. It strips us of our pride and it humbles us and it beckons us to come to Jesus, the friend of sinners. And so we thank you, we praise, all, praise you and we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.